Hello, listeners. This is Labor Know Your Rights Podcast. I'm your host, Dave. This episode is brought to you by the National League of Justice and Security Professionals, where the members come first. Contact information can be found in our show notes, including our toll-free number, where you can leave a message, ideas for future episodes, or tell us about events, campaigns, or victories in your union. Please check out Life on Record. Welcome back, listeners. This series will cover organized crime within the labor movement. Many people in the labor movement prefer to ignore this part of our history. I believe it is extremely important that we face this history, learn from it, and know how to remove and prevent it when it is attempted again. It was easy for organized crime groups to take over local unions in the first third of the 20th century especially craft unions in violent conflicts between workers and employers, Costa Nostris supplied goons to both sides. They would take over a local by means of violence, intimidation, and election fraud. Some labor racketeers were charismatic and no doubt some workers thought they would be better off being represented by individuals with a reputation. Sometimes gangsters became labor officials without any vote or other action by the workers, whom they came to represent. The National Labor Relations Act of 1935 allowed an employer to voluntarily recognize a particular union as the exclusive bargaining agent for his workers. This was binding for three years, with the exception that workers could vote to be represented by another union or no union at all. Some companies welcomed such corrupt unions thus avoiding having to deal with a real union. These racketeers were even recruited by so-called honest union leaders to defeat rival unions. The Italian-American organized crime groups engaged in labor racketeering from their beginnings in the United States. Joseph Lanza founded the Seafood Workers Union in the late 1920s and dominated the Fulton fish market in Lower Manhattan. All the participants in the fish market made payoffs to Lanza. Al Capone's original organized crime organization in Chicago in the 1910s and 1920s dominated dozens of locals in the building trades, hotel and restaurants, and other locals. Capone's gang took control of the Chicago-based Motion Picture Operators Union, MPOU. Capone ordered the union president killed. The movie producers paid Capone's organization $150,000 not to strike for seven years. In 1933, the International Alliance of Theatrical Stage Employees, IATSE, went out on strike. The employers sought the outfit's help They sent thugs to keep the theaters open and breaking the strike. They forced IATSE to hire outfit members and associates in various positions in the union, ensuring organized crime's presence in the film business for decades. 
Tony Accardo, longtime head of the outfit, controlled numerous laborers International Union of North America, L-I-U-N-A, locals in Chicago. That control enabled the outfit to designate and control the National General President Peter Fosco and later Peter's son Angelo and then Arthur Cola. Associate of the outfit, Sidney Korshak exercised enormous influence over the IBT Central State Pension and Welfare Funds, as well as influence over the IBT. Philadelphia had Angelo Bruno, who controlled the Roofers Union, as well as several hotel and restaurant employees, H-E-R-E locals in Atlantic City. Angelo Leonardo, boss of the Cleveland crime family, was heavily involved in labor racketeering. William Presser, nicknamed Big Bill, an associate of Cleveland's Likabali crime family, headed IBT Joint Council 41 and served as president of the huge Ohio Teamsters Conference. This power base allowed him and Leonardo, with the help of Chavala to arrange Bill's son, Jackie Presser's career in several different unions, including Jackie's 1983 succession to the IBT General President Jimmy Hoffa, Frank Fitzsimmons, Ray Williams, Jackie Presser, and William Carthy. The Cavalli crime family in Cleveland controlled a number of labor unions such as ILA Local 1317 and Teamsters Local 41, 410, and 416. Mo Delitz was the crime family's chief labor racketeer. His connections to Hoff and the Teamsters bore fruit when, later in his career, he used Teamsters pension fund loans to build Las Vegas casinos. Big Bill Presser served as president of the IBT Joint Council 41. His power hit its high when his son, Jackie, became IBT general president in 1983. It was simple for organized crime figures to take over a union local. They could use threats and actual violence to drive off competing unionists. They could use employer recognition of their union by threats of violence or sabotage or by promises of sweetheart deals and the lack of desire towards union governance and administration by union members helped them. For example, in 1921, several building services, Employees International Union B.S. EIU leaders were convicted of conspiracy. They were able to obtain pardons by appealing to the outfit to use its political influence. Within a short time, feeling that they owed them, organized crime moved to take control of the union. They gave the union officers an ultimatum. Put mob cronies in top union positions or leave town. George Scalise obtained a charter to create local 94 of the Bowling and Billards Academy Employees Union in 1938. Scalise called on organized crime to stuff union ballot boxes. Later, the mob helped him become the BSEIU's national president. New York City's garage owners were threatened with systemic vandalism to customers' cars. They voluntarily signed representational agreements with a mob-dominated sham union. Their workers paid dues without receiving any benefits or representation. Another scheme developed when civil RICO trusteeships started cleaning mobsters from unions, the independent union, unions not affiliated with any national or international union. After being expelled from the IBT, 
1994 for embezzlement, dual unionism, and breach of other fiduciary duties, Vincent Sembroto, former president of IBT Local 966 and that union's former secretary-treasurer, Edwin Gonzalez, set up a new independent union, Local 116, in Syracuse, New Jersey. Sembroto and Gonzalez enrolled current IBT Local 807 members into their new union. Once the organized crime organization gained a high position in the union or local, they moved to consolidate that control via strikes, via sticks and carrots. If a union member challenged the mob, they could be fired or face violent reprisals. Dissidents were beaten at union meetings, homes set on fire, and even murdered. Those who befriended the mob could be appointed as business agents and shop stewards. Assigned no-show are high-paying jobs, service contracts, cars, trips, loans, all cares for working with the mob. Las Cosa Nostris could get money out of unions by inflated salaries, multiple salaries, use of union-owned cars, planes, and boats, also overpaid jobs for family members, friends, and mistresses, no-show jobs, embezzlement, was common and aided accidentally by poor record-keeping. Later in the 1940s and 50s, pension and welfare funds grew with collective bargaining agreements containing agreements that employers contributing for employees and even with equal share of responsibility of union and employer, the employers paid little attention to how and where the funds were invested. Labor racketeers could use their union position to solicit bribes from employers to gain better CBAs to allow an employer to hire union and non-union employees. Racketeers also gained money by means of the strike insurance racket or labor peace extortion by threatening employers with labor problems. Unions controlled by Cosa Nostra could once they represented all or most employers of an industry form an employer association, paying a dues that went to Cosa Nostra's in return any firm not in the association were kept out of the industry, and any persistent firm would face labor troubles. Often after these employer associations were completed, Cosa Nostra or associates would start up by or strong arm their way into a firm, thus having an advantage over all other firms. Finally, they could force these firms in the employer associations to use mob-owned or controlled supply companies. They finally could force employers to purchase specific goods and services from mob-owned or mob-controlled supply companies. Labor racketeering could be very lucrative. Robert Brindle was the highest paid union official in the country. His graft is said to have netted more than $500,000 a year. Thomas Dewey's 1930s investigation into corruption within the restaurant industry found that racketeers stole one-third of union members' dues, as well as $75,000 from, from restaurant workers Local 6, 45000 from Local 322, and $120,000 from an employer association, in addition to 150000 from restaurant owners. Labor gave organized crime contacts with 
business as well as they had no choice but to do business with and get along with these corrupt union leaders. And these businessmen would reach out to these labor racketeers to help with labor disputes. It gets worse. Labor had influence in the political arena. So this created an environment where politicians reached out to labor for endorsements and thus racketeers to get these endorsements and to labor peace before elections. As these connections grew, the Cosa Nostra bosses turned into urban, regional, and even national power brokers. Labor was good for them, creating a regular revenue stream generated by union salaries, perks, extortions, bribes, embezzlement, and frauds. It made them part of the power elite of the 20th century and made them different from other crime groups, for example, biker gangs, street gangs, and drug cartels. President Reagan, in 1983, established a Commission on Organized Crime. They were to create a report analyzing region by region of organized crime problems to include information on its participants and an evaluation of applicable law and responses to the issues and recommendations for future actions. They heard testimony from the FBI, Department of Justice Lawyers, the Department of Labor Investigators, and Labor Leaders. They reviewed previous congressional investigations, hearings, and reports. They created a series of reports on gambling, money laundering, drug trafficking, and one called The Edge on Organized Crime Exploitation of Labor Unions. The Edge was released on March 1, 1986, and was mainly about four international unions with a richly documented history of labor racketeering. The International Brotherhood of Teamsters, IBT, the Hotel and Restaurant Employees International Union, H-E-R-E, the Labor's International Union of North America, L-I-U-N-A, and the International Longshoremen's Association, ILA. It also looked into racketeering in independent unions. The commission said, since the 1950s, the Teamsters had been firmly under the influence of organized crime. John DeGuardi, a capo in the Lucci crime family, was one of Jimmy Hoffa's main supporters in his rise to the IBT presidency. Hoffa gave DeGuardi charters for several New York-area IBT paper locals, that is, locals with no members. The Mafia retained its corruption in IBT long after Hoffa had resigned. At the time of the Commission's investigation, former IBT General President Roy Williams was cooperating with the government to get a shorter sentence on a conviction for attempting to bribe Senator Howard Cannon, a Democrat from Nevada, to vote against trucking deregulation. He testified that every big Teamsters local union had some connection with organized crime. William himself had been controlled by Kansas City Cosa Nostra boss Nick Chiavelli, who helped Williams win the presidency by obtaining support from organized crime bosses around the country. He testified that current President Jackie Presser depended on organized crime support for his election. Presser's father was an associate of Cleveland organized crime family, and an IBT Central States Pension Fund trustee until he was forced to resign 
1976. Presser was also an FBI informant, helping the FBI make cases against his political rivals. The commission traced organized crime's control over the IBT International Union to its control over key IBT locals. It documented a relationship between Cosa Nostra families and 36 IBT locals, one joint council, and a conference. Cosa Nostra converted control of locals into control of whole business sectors, such as the Gambino Crime Family Associates Bernard Adelstein's decades-long control of IBT Local 813 was key to the mob's domination of New York City's waste hauling industry. Mob-controlled unions elected mob-controlled officers who chose mob-controlled convention delegates. The mob-controlled delegates ratified the decisions and proposals of mob-controlled presidents, vice-presidents, and general executive boards, GEB, officers. The commission explained how Cosa Nostra organized crime families' influence in the IBT provided leverage over tens of thousands of businesses dependent upon truck deliveries converting it into cash through extortion, solicitation of bribes, and no-show jobs. They siphoned money from union coffers, taking kickbacks for sweetheart service contracts and arranging loans from IBT pension and benefit funds. Cosa Nostra associates like Alan Dorfman and Sidney Korshak and Bill Presser managed the IBT Central States Pension Fund, CSPF, for the benefit of organized crime. Typical pension plans invested in real estate at 5% to 10%. CFPF invested 70%, mostly in mob-sponsored Las Vegas casinos. According to the commission, Cosa Nostra exerted powerful influence over the hotel and employees and restaurant employees International Union, H-E-R-E-I-U, since National Prohibition, 1920 through 1933. A murder of a union member at the union's 1936 National Convention led to an investigation by New York City Special Prosecutor Thomas Dewey who uncovered rampant racketeering in restaurant industry unions and employer associations. The result was three union officials being convicted, a local being suspended, and the expulsion of several union officials. The McClellan Committee's hearings, 1957 through 1959, revealed organized crime's pervasive influence in Chicago's restaurant industry through control of three H-E-R-E locals. Thirty years later, the PCOC charged H-E-R-E-I-U-S as a documented relationship with Chicago outfit La Casa Nostra at the international level and is subject to the influence of the Gambino, Colombo, and Philadelphia La Casa Nostra families at the local level. The Senate Permanent Committee on Investigations 1981 through 1984 hearings. Subcommittee report says that H-E-R-E-I-U has been infiltrated from the top. This was because of the influence and power wielded in the Chicago area locals and the joint executive board by Joey Aupa, the underboss of the Chicago syndicate. Edward Hanley was elected president 
of H-E-R-E-I-U in 1973 because of the power and influence of Aupa and the Chicago mob. Others had been corrupted before Hanley and the locals too. He was just a classic example of a takeover of a major union. FBI officials told the Senate Permanent Subcommittee that H-E-R-E-I-U was forcing its locals to put their pension and benefit plans under the international's control to make it easier to exploit. The final report stated that many of the officers of H-E-R-E-I-U have consistently accorded a higher priority to their own personal and financial interests than to the interests of the rank-and-file members. Due to H-E-R-E-I-U's centralized organization, Cosa Nostra control over Hanley allowed significant influence over numerous H-E-R-E-I-U locals. In 1982, the New Jersey Casino Control Commission prohibited local 54 of H-E-R-E-I-U from collecting dues from casino employees because of the influence of organized crime had made the local unfit to represent casino workers' interests. The U.S. Supreme Court upheld that decision, observing that the start of casino gambling in New Jersey was heralded with great expectations for the economic boost of the Atlantic City region, but with equally great fears of the potential for organized crime involvement. Please share this podcast with your family and friends. If you like our podcast, please rate us on iTunes. It helps others find us. If you would like to contact us, we have various ways to do so in our show notes, along with contact information for the National League of Justice and Security Professionals. Thank you for listening.